Ten years ago, Ali Boone of Hipster Investment dumped her nine-to-five job as an aeronautical uh, space engineer and began investing in real estate full-time. And Ali has recently authored Not Your How-To Guide to Real Estate Investing, Life Lessons of Hacking Your Mind Before You Hack Your Wallet. Welcome to the Truth About Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Ma. Excited to talk with you, Ali. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Cool. I wanted to learn more about you and really like, how did you start investing in real estate? Uh, before you mentioned you started in 2011, what mm-hmm. made you jump from like, you know, aerospace engineering into real estate investing? Accident? <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, actually, well, it was really, it came out of just my drive to get out of corporate. That's all I cared about. And I didn't know how that was going to happen. But as soon as, before I ever sat down in my first cubicle, I stared at it and I was like, uh oh! Like I knew I had to get out of there, and but I didn't know how to get out. Like I just, I just knew I needed out. So for the next five years, while I kept that engineering job, I was exploring everything. And really, what it kind of came down to is, it seemed like, according to everything I was reading, that I was either going to have to start a business or do something in real estate. And I had actually decided to start a business. I didn't know what kind, but I was like, I'll start a business. That'll be a good idea. And through everything I was exploring, this investment opportunity kind of landed in my lap. I thought it was a scam. I was like, whatever. And it ended up being a little more serious than that. And I was like, well, you know, while I'm here, I might as well do something smart with my money. Because when I start this business, whatever that was going to be, I may not have this W-2 paycheck. I may not have this health insurance anymore. Like, you know, while I have all this, let's just do something smart with it. And that is really what opened the door. So I really started just investing for myself accidentally, mostly because it landed in my inbox. And I had kind of researched it anyways and kind of explored it. It seemed like something up my alley. But when I started doing that, that's kind of what led to, you know, I started meeting people, networking, learning about different opportunities. And it just went into a complete snowball after that. And I've been doing it ever since. And I swear, real estate, I feel like is one of those love hate things where like every time I'm like, I'm getting out of this, I am sick of it. I get it's like a boomerang. I just keep coming back because there's so much you can do with it that it just keeps me sticking around. But it eventually let me leave engineering and I've been doing real estate full time for coming up on almost 10 years. Nice. Congratulations, too. Thank you. It's good to talk about this, too, because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are kind of stuck in that space. Like they do full time jobs, they're in corporate, they're tired of it. They're making good money, but at the same time, you're tired of it. Like what made you tired of it? I was tired of it before I started it. <laughs> like <laughs> part of it was, so I went, I, was, I got a master's degree. I was in grad school. And when I was in grad school, I was flying airplanes as an instructor. So nice. my side gig or my job at the time while I was in grad school was flying airplanes, teaching people how to fly. So if you picture it, my office was the sky and it was adventurous and I'm outdoors and just, you know, hello, it was a fun job. And so, you know, then I land the dream job and I put on my business casual clothes. I finished that degree and I was like, oh man, here I come like big girl world. And I literally walked, I was working for a defense company. So everything was kind of super secret and all that. And my office was, I literally had to walk like half a mile under in an underground tunnel to get there. So, you know, I'm trucking along with my little lunch box and my hideous business casual clothes. And I, and I'm also not a morning person. So this was also a rude awakening on the time front. And so whoever was leading me said, okay, this is where you're going to be. And I turned the corner and this whole cubicle was just gray like there was nothing there. And I knew but literally before I sat down in that chair, I was like, I got to get out of here. Like I, I just knew it. And I think in hindsight, I don't think I know in hindsight, I remember being 13 thinking I'm going to make a lot of money. And I've always been this kind of rebellious. I'm not really one for bosses and all that kind of stuff, which, you know, I'm not the jerk who won't listen to them. I'll respect them, but I don't like having them. I like to do things on my time, my schedule, my way. And so that was always in play. And so I think just turning that corner into the cubicle, I knew what I, I, I realized what I already knew, which was, this was not going to be me. I'm not a business casual person. Obviously I'm not a morning person. I'm not a report to managers and corporate and all that kind of stuff. And so I, I knew, and I was just thinking, man, I just went to school for a really long time. For this. <laughs> you like, have to go for that too. Oh, right? MBA, you know? cool. 
cool. <laughs> but I did give it a whirl. I will say that, you know, I did a couple different jobs within that industry. I even took a job transfer with that company to California. I was living in Georgia at the time. And this job description for the job I took seemed really, it was more outdoors, all weather, super top secret. I was like, man, if I'm going to like any of this, this will work. And I got out. I'm super appreciative for the whole experience, but and it really was the dream job. It just wasn't my dream job. So I can officially say I gave it my all to make sure that it wasn't me, but it wasn't. I, I had to be my own boss. That's good to know, too, because, you know, at some point in life, you realize what you really want and passion comes in play. But also yeah. being able to be analytical and say, hey, I have the job. It pays well, but I'm going to use this opportunity now to really start investing in real estate. And the same thing yeah. happened to me, too. Like I was in real, I was in tech for 15 years and doing defense yeah. security, too. And, you know, being stuck in a cubicle is not so great. Like, you know, you wake up every day, you go to work and early and you're in a cubicle. Is that what, how you, uh -huh. you live your life? For me, for me, it wasn't too. And real estate happened to come in during the midst of it too, because you know, for me, I bought my first house in when I was 24 in San Francisco. And that wasn't easy, but the tech money helped a lot. Make it happen. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's it's tough, and you realize, hey, there's more opportunities out there than you think of. You know, education teaches you to go to corporate jobs and just teaches you to be work for corporate America. But really, there's a whole life outside of it, and it's the risk takers who take it and who work hard to transition to that space. So for you, you know, you realized that you started transitioning by saying, Hey, I'm going to keep a job. I'm going to start learning how to invest in real estate. Yeah. I fell in your lap. How did you, what did you take? What steps did you take to buy your first property? Well, my first property is kind of a funny story. I won't dive into all of it, but mm -hmm my first property was not at all what I ended up doing more full-time as real estate. So the first property, that one that ended up in my inbox that lured me in that I was convinced was a scam. It's going to sound like a scam when I tell you what it was. It was a, well, a quick backstory is before this opportunity landed in my inbox, I had been exploring real estate and I live in Los Angeles and I had a friend who had an agent friend who worked a lot with investors. So I had pretty recently just gone out touring properties with him and all the, and they were in Orange County, all the properties, the cheapest one, I think was $270,000 total distress. Like this would require a full rehab. And he told me, I said, well, you know, what would we be able to rent it out for? And he said, probably about 1200 a month. And I thought at the time I had no idea how to run rental property numbers, but even without knowing how to do it, I was like, how much, what? Like, how's I don't know where the 1200 that I don't know how this profits, but okay. So these were pretty expensive houses. They were going to require all sorts of rehab, all sorts of whatever. So fast forward, when this opportunity lands in my inbox, the lure was the price for starters. It was $99,000 beachfront, which also had me bungalow in Nicaragua. And I was like, hang on. Where's Nicaragua? Okay, definitely the third world country I thought we were talking about in Central America. And I was like, wait, oh, and with seller financing. I was like, $99,000 with seller financing, beachfront, mm -hmm. and Nicaragua? I'm in. I was like, okay. And I really was convinced it was a scam because it sounds like one. It sounds like and, one. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm bored though. I'll watch the webinar. And it actually started to kind of pan out and be more legit. And it was a big deal. Like Wyndham Hotels was, it was all pre-construction, which I bet you can guess where that, the fate of that's going to turn out. Um, Wyndham Hotels was in on it. Jack Nicholas Golf Course was in. So this was actually like a pretty serious thing. I learned a lot more about Nicaragua. Long story short, I ended up going for it. I ended up buying a beachfront bungalow and a home site. And so the money for that was actually pretty easy because it was cheap because it was seller financing. And, you know, I think I had to put, uh, I guess it was 30% down all for both of them. I put 40,000 in and the rest was seller financing. So having a high paid corporate job and all that. And I think at the time, most of it was my own money, but maybe a third of it over something was something creative. I don't remember what I did, but somehow I pulled it off, but it was meeting those people and going through that investment that eventually got me into turnkey rental properties. Cause a lot of the people dealing with this investment were also dealing with turnkeys and turnkeys is really what got me going. And that required a lot of creative financing because all of a sudden I needed several down payments of 20% on a mortgage. And I was like, well, I can do some of it on my own, but like, how do I, and at the time these properties were like 
fifty, sixty thousand dollars because it was in the crash. So I needed like multiple sets of ten and twenty thousand dollars. I was like, okay, well, cool. But how do I keep getting more and more of that? So I did some partnering stuff. I did some of my own money and it just kind of a whole bunch of creative financing. But I'll tell you what, it very quickly became an addiction. I was like, I'm gonna because. Hello, the deals were great back then too. I was like, I want so many of them. So I really, my poor corporate job, I don't know if they know how much they were paying me for how little work I actually did. Because <laughs> I was over here trying to figure out how to buy more real estate and taking trips to Nicaragua and like, you know, thanks corporate. That was great. That was definitely on your dime. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of corporate jobs right now, they're thinking about that. Like, okay, who's really working in their tracking and looking at people from the last two and a half years? Like, are they really working? Are they really productive? And who's, there's a percent out there who are not really, they're doing side hustles yeah. and looking at their full-time hustle because they do want to get out. And I, I get that point of view. I'm, I'm sure a lot of us have done that. Uh, so, you know, looking at, at those investments, seller financing is really creative because you're using their money to leverage their property and you're getting the asset, but you also have to put in your fair share to get the property, such as a 20, 30% down payment and doing that. Um, and during the time, during the downtime too, there's a lot of good opportunity and it's up to the individuals to take the risk to say, hey, this is good because, you know, in, in life, the housing real estate is going, it's moving forward and people are, the populations are growing. Mm -hmm. And for you to think of creatively as a newer investor back then, how do I find more money? What other strategies can I employ to get other people's money to invest with me to buy yeah. these properties in Nicaragua, which we think is a scam to trust me, but as you understood the backing of uh, these companies who are, you know, like Wyndham and um, them, they can say, okay, well, that makes sense. Let's try it out and see the results. Yeah. What kind of results were you seeing back then in like these investments? Well, like what, what kind, like you're learning about sure, the numbers. Sure like, we don't want to talk about turnkeys now? <laughs> well, you know, as pre-construction goes, it turned out to be, well, so, you know, it was a great learning opportunity. Um, the it, as the famous story goes and this really is kind of a message to people you know i've heard this is not just in third world countries that this happens i hear it happens it can happen in the u.s just as easy um it was the famous story of suddenly nothing's really been built and the money's disappeared and every all the you know and there were i was fortunate that i was only forty thousand then because there were a lot of people with millions of their own money like this was a really big project and obviously wyndham and jack nicholas and all those guys and so to say there were a lot of pissed off people all of a sudden, like, hey, Mr. Developer, what's going on? Where's the money? He's like, oh. And so it never happened. Uh, Wyndham and Jack Nicholas pulled out. And it was a little bit of a rough start. Fortunately for me, I at the same time, before everything was lost, I had gotten into turnkeys. And those were going so well, not without hiccups, but they were going pretty well. So it's not, you know, if I, if that had just been my only investment, I may have really written off real estate. And I was tempted quite a few times because it's like, wait, my first investment out of the gate, I just throw $40,000 down the toilet, never to be seen again. Supposedly I'll see it again, but it's now been uh, quite a while. And so like, that was a rough start to real estate. And fortunately I had a really solid mentor at the time and I may have stuck it out without him, but he really fed me a lot of good words is like, it, it's not, I don't know what words he said, but like basically looking back, what I can tell you is every penny of that $40,000 was worth it because I have way more made up. I've made way more than that because of that investment. So while I didn't get the beachfront bungalow and the home site, I got basically the rest of my world. I have everything I have today because of that investment, because I was willing to do that. Now that doesn't mean, you know, it's, I also was a single high paid person at the time. It's not like, you know, if I had a family in tow or whatever, or as the last dollars that I had, you know, obviously gauge your risk, but sticking it out from the mindset perspective, you know, it's kind of real estate's one of those things you're going to get knocked down. And I was like, you know, I'd read enough books at that point. I was like, you know what? Here's what I'm telling myself. If 40,000 is the most I ever lose as a successful real estate investor, I'm actually doing pretty good. You know, you read all the stories of the big guys, everybody, you you you're if you stick with real estate long enough, you're going to lose. And so, you know, all you can really do is the best that you can every single day. And again, a little bit of an aggressive start for me, but I am the one who jumped into a third world country as her first investing strategy. So, you know, can't be yeah. all that upset, but you know, it is, it is a, it's a learning thing, but yeah, that was a, 
I did get to go to Nicaragua a lot, and I love it down there. It's easily probably one of my favorite countries so far. Nice. I think the part of it, the point of it, too, is really understanding the different cycles and different kind of strategies you employ to really learn where you are at now and how that works together. So, like, when you jump in, you really, you know, think about this. It's like time in the market, right? Not timing the market, but being to put time in the market. And you put the time in, and you learn a lot from that time. And you realize what works for you. It might work for others. They might be really successful, but you figure out what works for you. And, you know, for you, you went to turnkey properties and like when you look back at that time there's so many different avenues of like okay single families multi-families fix and flips um yeah. short-term rentals now uh, and then now even looking at okay turnkey properties what made you look at turnkey properties i know your mentor mentioned turnkey properties and got you into it but like when you're looking at it like what stood out to you about turnkey properties yeah uh well before i answer that just even you saying short term available now is like oh my God, that wasn't a thing back then. Like, oh, a little nostalgia there. Like, oh, there was no Airbnb. Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I'm so curious. things were turnkey, yeah. hands down, that that lured me in. Because like I said, I went down to those properties in Orange County. I had, when I was exploring business and real estate investing, I was actively exploring both of those as an option. And nothing immediately jumped out about real estate to me when I was doing that, which is why I decided to start a business. Again, a mystery business, because I didn't know what it was going to be. But I like, I, I could see myself in the real estate side, but nothing grabbed me. So I was like, well, I guess I'll do the business thing. And looking back, what didn't grab me about real estate is when I was trying to leave corporate, I was really not trying to leave for another job. And I'm also not very handy. I also hate dealing with contractors. Like all I could picture was like, okay, I mean, I'm smart enough to flip a house. If I need to flip a house, like if I have to do that, that's fine. But like, like if I could do the work myself or I was handier or it was just more in my kind of natural skills, which it's not, you know, that would be great. But I think that's kind of what kept me out. So like this Orange County house, first of all, the numbers didn't really make sense. Here I am looking at real estate in Los Angeles. And then I'd have to do all that, like, ugh, just, it was just kind of a ugh every time I turned around. And when turnkeys came around, I was like, wait a minute, you mean I can get a rental property and not have to put in any of that work? Like, I don't have to swing a single hammer. And that was the first time that I had been introduced to that idea of, oh, I didn't need to do it super actively. And that I was like, okay, tell me more. And what really got me into turnkeys, which really isn't about the strategy, is in 2011, Atlanta became one of the absolute, well, not one of, it was probably the absolute best market to invest in because it had this massive boom right after that. Cash flow, the price to rent ratios were crazy. It was like, the whole thing was unheard of. And I grew up in Atlanta. So when the turnkey guys, they knew, I was like, I'm not into that turnkey thing. That sounds so boring. Let's focus on third world countries and the beach. Hello. And they said, hey, we know you're not really super into the turnkey thing, but just a heads up, Atlanta's kind of the next one. I was like, oh, well, I'm from Atlanta. I know lots about Atlanta. Tell me more. So I really kind of only started buying them because they were in Atlanta. And I was like, oh, I know the market. But also it really was a strategy of, oh, I can do something smart with my money without doing all of that work. Like my goal is to be on the beach, not working more. And so that, that was what really jumped out to me about the turnkeys. Nice. And when you look at the numbers back then in Atlanta, what kind of numbers were you seeing? Do you really want to know? People buying turnkeys now, they'll reach out and they're like, you know, what are the, what are the numbers on your properties? I'm like, just don't ask. You don't want to. So what is it now? <laughs> well, get your Kleenex box out. Um, yeah. So my very first turnkey in Atlanta, I still have it. It was a, or is a really cute two-story house. This thing was rehabbed top to bottom, a carpet at the time. Now it has LVP paint. I mean, the whole works fully rehabbed. The neighborhood at the time was a solid B neighborhood. It's probably B plus arguably. So it's a great area. Whole thing fully rehabbed with tenants in it, $55,000. And the tenants at the time were paying $975 in rent. And that right there is what, what, aside from the appreciation massive boom that happened, that's what put Atlanta on the map is because during the crash, those price to rent ratios, you could buy something for so cheap and it was still renting for a high amount. $975 on $55 is like, oh my God. And now I think that property is rented for... 
it's either $14.95 or $15.95 or something. And this is, you know, I, I talk to people a lot about like looking back over 10 years. I still paid only $55,000 for that property. And now it's running for $1,500 or whatever. And like my price and expenses didn't change. The rents went up, you know, it's a big thing. So that was, you know, that's what we were working with in 2011 Atlanta. Now, yeah, like those numbers translated to, I want to say it was like a give or take ballpark, like 14% cap rates, which would translate to somewhere between 25 and 32% cash on cash return, which was ridiculous. Nowadays on the turnkeys, you're going to be super lucky to, well, interest rates just jacked with us too. Um, kind of more of a standard cash on cash now for turnkeys is 10%. I mean, you did hear me say 30% before yeah, cap rates more like six, 7%. But now with the interest rates having jumped up, you're kind of getting down to somewhere between like six to 8% cash on cash. And if you get in a new construction, like if you even cash flow, like you can get down to one and 3%. So, I mean, it is drastically different now, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. And when we look back, of course, we, like, I wish I could buy that many more, 10 times more, right? And just have If it. I knew then what I know, I've, I tell my parents, I me and my parents are really close and I tell them all the time, like, I'm glad that I bought what I did back then. But had I known how stupidly profitable all these things were going to be, I would have figured out even more. I would have just like... Oh, can you imagine? Oh, man. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it still can happen now. It's just that we have to search way harder. We have to look at all the, be open-minded to looking at all the opportunities in the entire U.S. or a different country. Look at what's changing in their market and look at yeah. those hits. But the hard part is like the benefit for you is you knew Atlanta, so it's easy to go into something you already know. But if, yeah. if I tell you to go to the middle of nowhere and you don't know anything about it, it's going to be so much harder because your risk tolerance is going to be a lot smaller. You'd be really critical. Even yeah. if there was good opportunity there, that's where those guys who are taking guys and people are taking the risk they're like okay if they who knows it best can gain faster but if we take the opportunity to learn it there might be something there but it's a lot of research in mind to really find the winning opportunities and that's well and that and too there's also a huge in my opinion huge mindset requirement Mm -hmm. difference between now and back then back then honestly anybody could invest Everything was dirt cheap. Interest rates were cheap. Things only went up. It was just like prime time for investing. So what I have seen over 10 years is basically people I would put more into the consumer category got to act like investors because it was so easy to invest. And just literally in the last, especially this year, but over the last couple of years, but absolutely this year with interest rates going up, you, the consumers are dropping out. Like you have to adopt an investor mindset now in order to invest because real estate is still going to be super duper profitable, but it's not as obvious as, you know, when you have a 14% cap rate and a 30% cash on cash return for $55,000, you know, easy, super easy. And now it's not easy. And so I'm really seeing the men get separated from the boys, so to speak, mm-hmm. you know, or women getting separated for whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's, it's making a difference. A lot of people are dropping off. So in order to invest now, it's absolutely requiring a different mindset that honestly hasn't been required for the last 10 years, in my opinion. Yeah. And it, yeah. Because real estate during this last couple of years, the, all the boom is easy to sell. Like you can sell tons of real estate. So Everything's going up. <laughs> easy. Like, Hey, I sold a house for 900,000 over asking 500,000, 300,000. That's easy because the yeah. market's easy. Once it gets hard, people just drop out because they don't know what it's like before, before yeah. all this and during the crashes and understanding how we have to use our mindset, use our strategy, use our networking, our relationships and our knowledge to really yeah. understand how to time it to help our clients and investors really invest. And today with the markets changing so quickly with the rates jumping up, people get scared of it, right? And I think even for me, I made mistakes back then too. Like I realized there's so much good opportunities I could have had like you during these bad times. I made a couple of great ones, great ones during that time with my mindset, but there's some I missed because I'm like, yeah, why shouldn't I have done that? Why didn't I do a hard money loan at 10, 12, 14% with this property that made total sense? And the 14% is not forever. The 14% is only during this one, six months, one year time period. And you refinance it afterwards, even if you refinance it at a high rate, when the cash flow makes sense, just do it, right? But yep. people get scared of the mindset saying, well, yep. it's risky. Why are you going to do 14%? The 14% is not ever. It's only for that time period. Yep. It's nothing, right? It's like dollars. If you look at dollar amount, dollar amount is so small. Your mindset screws you on the 14% versus, yep. hey, that's $30,000. 
chump change yep. versus a million dollar equity growth, right? Yeah. So that's where people yeah, a lot of it too is just under like truly under, and this is where the investor mindset comes in, but truly understanding if we're talking about rental properties, how a rental property, for example, makes money. It's not just from cash flow because people are freaking out now. They're like, well, you know, back then you could get $500 a month cash flow, and now you might be getting like 80 to $100, and they're like, oh, no cash flow, gotta go. And it's like, that is not the only way that a rental property makes money. Yes, it's important, but if you get it now for 80 to $100 a month, that in no way whatsoever means that you're not gonna be super profitable along the line. You know, rental properties are long term investments. And so it's really that being willing to learn the truth about real estate investing. Because again, back then you didn't really have to know any of that stuff. It's just obvious on paper, like, oh, I'm gonna do this. But yeah, really understanding and, you know, fix and flips or whatever it is you're doing. We're not even back to high interest rates. We're back to average interest rates. You know, like I, I don't want to be one of these people who brings up the 80s, but hello, those are 16% interest rates and people were still crazy profitable. And so it really is, you know, everything you're saying and then just understanding really the, the, the depths of how profit happens with real estate. Let's talk about that too. Like my first property, the interest rate was 6.25% interest only loan. And I still did it. It, it still is. It still oh. <laughs> It's like when you think about these numbers and let's talk about today's numbers. Okay. If you're buying a turnkey property today and you know, what's the, like, and you talked about how if you're getting 80 to hundred dollars a month, you know, net profit, like why is, why does that make sense? What, what, uh, what options do you see throughout that it adds value to the investor? Uh, there's a couple different ways I can answer. Um, I can give you an example and I can give you just kind of a quick, you know, how does a rental property make money? Like we're kind of skirting over this. People might be like, yeah, let's oh, talk how about else it. does it make money? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So look at a rental property. It's going to make money in five different ways. Number one, cash flow. Exactly what we're talking about. 80 bucks in your pocket every month. Woo. Appreciation, which we all know it is speculative, but appreciation is a big one. Um, I know them in order. Cash flow appreciation. You're going to build equity through the mortgage pay down. So let's say you have tenants, you're making 80 bucks a month. Their payment is covering your mortgage. So every mortgage payment that they make on your behalf is more equity to you. So if at some point, you know, my little $55,000 property, let's say it's going to get paid off in 30 years. I now have all of the equity of that house as my profit. My tenants paid it down. So equity build via mortgage pay down, tax benefits, I've never had higher tax return, or I know at the time when I had a W-2, I never had higher tax returns as when I started buying rental properties. Because now, you know, a lot of that, in, or most of that income, potentially all of it, becomes tax-free. So the tax benefits on all of this is huge. And then the last one that's a little less intuitive, but it's incredibly important right now, is hedging against inflation. The more inflation that we experience, the more profitable you're going to be with that fixed rate loan. Because if you if I paid $55,000 back then, what's $55,000 worth today? I don't know, call it 40,000 or some number. <laughs> but, you know, so I paid in nominal dollars back then, I'm paying back that loan in dollars with a decreased value. So I'm also profiting there, which is very handy to know right now. So that's how rental properties make money. Now, that's not to say if you get a property with $80 of cash flow a month that you should be like, oh, it'll be fine. I'll make money in all the rest of them. You have to learn what to look for in properties. So back in the day, those really cheap properties, you could buy some shack and live off the cash flow and whatever because the cash flow is so high. Now the cash flow is not high. So you are more reliant on the other profit centers. So appreciation that we all know. Not every house is going to appreciate that much. You need to know what neighborhood you're buying in? Is it in the wave of growth? You don't want it to decline because then you're negative appreciation. You know, so there's different factors. Like the property itself needs to be sustainable and it needs to be in a growth, a path of growth. So the example that I can give, you know, in lieu, I love that you were 6.25 because I think I bought my first house, which was not an investment at the time, uh, was when I had my corporate job as a house for myself, which later I turned into a rental property. But I bought it in 2008 and my interest rate was 6.75. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, 6.25, remember that? Yeah. And so when I took my job, transfer to California, it was right in the middle of the crash. So my property at the time had de the value decreased by more than half, I think, from what I had, mm. like, hello, 2008, buying a house, 
guess what happened right after that? I was like, oh, great. I just paid all this money for a house and now it's worth less than half. That's super cool. And when I moved, because of that, I decided to rent it out instead of sell it when I moved. When I was renting it out at the 6.75 interest rate on my mortgage, the rent on that house, I think was $9.95. And that was exactly what my mortgage was. So it was really kind of break even. So really, I was technically kind of in the hole with this house a little bit because I had expenses on top of that or whatever. I just had a tenant re-sign their lease like a month ago. And he re-signed at $17.50. And market value rent for that house now is $18.50. So people are freaking out about the 80 to a hundred dollar cash flow today. But what people don't realize is that's only today. If you're buying a solid house and a solid asset, it's going to increase over time. And also in that period, I refinanced the mortgage when interest rates dropped. So even when I had the 6.75, that didn't carry on forever. Even if it did, I'd still be profitable on it. But I refinanced it at like four or 4.25 or something. So now my mortgage is so low and now I'm getting 1750 in rent. That's only over 10 years. And so that is really where, you know, the cash flow and all those things today are not going to stay. So you're not just going to see appreciation on the property value. You're going to see it on the rents because rents are going to always go up. Again, this doesn't count for all properties because you got to be smart about what you're buying. But assuming that mindset, over 10 years of having this property, or more than 10 years of having this property, it went from kind of break even to oh, maybe a little negative to easily my most profitable property that I have. And so that's really kind of what we're looking at with, it's not just the cash flow that matters. It's important because you don't want to be paying out, you know, especially something you can't afford every month, but the cash flow helps, but also nobody has made all of their riches in real estate just from the cash flow either. It's more of, that's more of a security kind of safety buffer, especially if there's a market crash or whatever. But yeah, it's, I could talk for hours on this. It's so fun. <laughs> it it's really good to understand because one is there's different ways to do it. And good thing you talked about like, you know, loans and refinancing. I'll give a good example for people to understand turnkey properties and understand the different dynamics of the real estate investing. Like I help my clients. I'm a real estate agent and broker too. And I help my clients. And for example, we bought during 2008 time, we bought a two unit building for them and owner occupy one unit, rent the other unit out. And, you know, back then a two unit in San Francisco was actually dirt cheap. It was like, it was like free almost. It was like 800, 900,000. And people, a lot of my investors were skipping out because like, oh, it's going to go cheaper. I'm like, land is not cheap in San Francisco, period. And you're buying the house at this price point. How much farther can it go down? It's already at the bottom. I'm like, no, no, I can get down to 100. I'm like, no, you can't. Four uh, months later, back up. I'm like, right? ugh, ugh, yeah. it me. <laughs> when you look at that number, I was teaching my investors back in the days, don't go buy single family homes yet because if you can afford it from your tech job or a good corporate job, let's go buy some multi-units because it's cheap right now. Oh, yep. it's so risky. Everything's shutting down. Like, doesn't matter. If you can afford it and you have the risk tolerance, you can yep. buy these now and the rents already cover it. You're already cash flowing with it and you can still live in one of the units and break even. But watch what happens next. Okay, you mentioned equity growth because pay down. The people are helping you pay a portion of your mortgage. Let's, for example, let's call it 4000 If a renter was paying in San Francisco 2000 a month and you pay 2000 a month, they're breaking down part of your mortgage, right? Half of it, let's call it half. But yeah. in the future, you know the market's going to go up. The rents will go up, right? And there's rent control and everything in place. But what happens if you move out one day to buy a house and that person pays 3000 and here's 2000 and let's say that total was your mortgage 4000 PITI, let's call it. Yeah, You're getting a net $1,000 profit. But in 10 years later, let's talk about it. The rents are over three to 4000 per unit. That's eight nine $9,000. I could probably hit 10000 and your mortgage is yeah. still 4000 you're netting yep. 6000 a month on a two-unit building. I have some clients who are netting 15000 a month mm -hmm. on a two-unit, but they're in a high, perfect, really good area. And location was what matters first. Really great location, really good building, knowing where it is, knowing the value of time. And as the you know corporate jobs, everything income grew with this density in mind, you're, you have equity growth and you have rental growth and you have mortgage pay down and inflation benefit, right? And the yep. tax benefits with it. But, you know, in the short side of it, okay, I get net cash flow. It's not only about the cash flow. It's about how you can grow right. all the different avenues. If you really understand the market, the dynamic, the location, and the price point you're getting into and how that works. But there is risk involved. But once you start understanding this and seeing it, there's a lot of great opportunity out there. Even in a high interest rate like now, 5.5% plus is high, but it's not high at all. Right. If you look at the numbers, because the rent is so we're at 16% from the 80s. 
Yeah. Uh, hi. <laughs> like, just keep my mouth shut. Let's not channel that in. <laughs> if you give me a house at that price point back in the days, like what, 80, 500, 200, 300, 400,000 in the Bay Area, 500,000 is still even at 60%. I understand it's a lot of risk and everything. It's hard and it's not yeah. easy. But look at how much those houses grow. I think one of my oldest clients, he bought a North Beach property. Okay. North Beach is one of the prime real estates in San Francisco. He bought his house for eight thousand dollars. It's a four four house. He goes, but I bought it nineteen twenties, okay, and it's four floors. I'm like, you know, that's worth about four or five six million dollars right now if you renovate it, right? And like he goes, yeah, I got, I paid for the most expensive house because other houses are only averaging two to three thousand per house. I'm like, how do you get older for that? Then he goes, well, back then we're making a quarter. I'm like, he's eighty something years old. I'm like, okay, I get it. You know, you're, yeah. you're a CPA, you're making good money back then at a dollar or whatever. But like, yeah. You see how houses can grow so quickly over time? Yeah. You know, one thing you said that made me think of something, you mentioned people being scared of doing it. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen over 10, I love now that I'm 10 years into this because I love looking back because a lot of the things that I've now learned, I didn't know even that I was learning at the time, but now kind of that hindsight perspective. And one thing that I can absolutely concretely say is at every phase of real estate, there's something you could be scared of. So during the crash, a lot of people held out because they're like, well, you know, I don't know the state of the economy and jobs and like, what about my job? And, and fair, you know, this is not to say you should just go rogue and be like, it'll be fine. You know, again, if you're toting a family around and, you know, you, you be somewhat conscientious, but the the fear back then was, well, you know, we're in a recession, the economy's bust, like just too many unknowns, can't, you know, eek, let's whatever. And then as prices started getting higher, then people are like, well, you know, I don't want to pay this price though, because it used to be, you know, $30,000 cheaper. What if it goes back down? I, I don't want to get it when it's more expensive. So that held people out in the middle. And now people are holding out because high, you know, the cash flow is lower, the interest rates or whatever. There's always a reason to not invest in terms of the fear and, you know, whatever. There's always going to be something to fear. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, what's the cliche phrase about like the best time to buy real estate was 20 years ago, the next yeah. best time is now. Yeah. It really is true. And I have a property local to me, which goes against everything I've ever preached about real estate. I'm the landlord and I paid at top of the market. It was negative cash flow for a long time. But even that one has shifted and it things go up over time. And so always just acknowledging that there will always be a reason to fear it, but you've got to get in at some point. And the chances of us having a crowd, because people are like, well, what if the big, even right now people are talking about, well, a recession's looming. I'm like, yeah, but you do know in the last five recessions, only one of them, housing prices went down, right? Like typically in recessions, housing prices go up. And so it's like, people are waiting on this 2008 crash thing. And it's like, Nope. Ain't gonna happen. I nope. would love if it happened. Nope. <laughs> I would love it. Now I'm like, oh, now I know, but it's not gonna happen. So, you know, again, just being aware of when you're making an excuse all the time. And the reality is, as long as you're buying something solid, it, you know, this is again not an invite to just go rogue and get whatever, you gotta do it at some point, regardless of the fear. And, you know, for turnkey properties, like you mentioned before too, buying a turnkey property, the benefit of that is you don't really have to deal with the contractors. You don't have to deal with everything being done, choosing all the materials, time delays, uh, vacancy delays. You're buying a turnkey property and you're basically being able to own it now, being able to yeah. rent it out as an investment property if you're choosing to do that and yeah. being able to not deal with all this work. So you're saving time and effort and experience too. Like if you're a newer investor and you don't want to deal with all this, it's a lot of work. And I've done a lot of it from the ground up. It's a lot of work. Yeah. But you know, for me, there's different styles, but being a turnkey property. So you're saying, for example, I can buy it, I can rent it out, I can cash possibly cash flow, uh, depending on the price point, depending on the rate. But that it, it makes it easier to go into more investments, right? Because once yeah. you go in, and I think one thing I learned from turnkey properties is one of my investor friends, he bought a turnkey Airbnb property and that thing is cash flowing like crazy. It was perfectly yeah. good location, is built beautifully, is Instagrammable and it was a turnkey and the rents, he's hitting high numbers. I'm like, that's unbelievable. Over 25% yeah. cap rates today 
I'm like, 25% cap rates. I'm like, oh, okay. How much work did you put into this? You know? <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> yeah. he, he, he put a little bit of work on I'm like, okay, that's not bad at all. I got to look into that further. But I know <laughs> like, I don't hate that. <laughs> yeah, you know? like, what's the tax strategy behind that? How are you, what's your vacancy on that? How are you calculating this and like getting there? But what, what other things did you like about turnkeys that made you invest more and more into that? I mean, really at the time it was the prices like, you know, I, I, it, it honestly, and it used to be a question that popped up all the time back then. Nowadays it doesn't really pop up, but everyone's question was, and mine was, this seems too good to be true. What's the trick? It's like yeah. for $55,000, I get a freshly rehabbed house with tenants paying almost a thousand dollars a month and property managers on standby to like, tell me more. What's the scam? Scam. And so like, it really did feel like it was too good to be true. That is not the case now, because again, now you're down to lower cash flow, all that kind of stuff. But at the time for me, it was the hands-off component and the price point. And, you know, let's not be naive to, there are downsides to turnkeys because we can paint this beautiful picture of it. But the number one downside to a turnkey is you are going to pay more. Mm -hmm. So, it's a trade for work and time. I tell, I've had people call me and they're like, Hey, I'm thinking about buying a turnkey. And through talking to them, I realize that they're, they're kind of handy. They might live in a market where there might be some cash flow or whatever. And I'm like, you sure you want to buy a turnkey? Like if you don't have to go the turnkey route, I don't recommend it. Do all the work yourself. Like if you know what you're doing, you know, value add opportunities are huge at that point. Why would you buy a turnkey? And there are several reasons and several categories of people that I think turnkeys are fantastic for, but you are going to pay more for a turnkey because everything's already done. So you're going to pay market value for a turnkey, hopefully not more. There are turnkey providers who charge more than market, but you're not going to have that forced appreciation ability and that the equity build right off. You're going to have to let the market build the equity for you. So there is a downside and kind of a less obvious downside that I've learned over the years watching myself buy and watching other people buy is there's this... Um, I blame the marketing. It, there's this mindset that turnkey investors often come in with of, oh, everything's done for me. I can just sit back and, you know, twiddle my pen, whatever. I don't have to do anything. And that's absolutely not accurate is you have to learn due diligence. You are still in charge of this. Someone's just handing you this property that does not get you off the hook from doing the work. And I was actually guilty of this in the beginning too. I was like, oh, this thing's supposed to be perfect. Everyone does everything for me bad mindset to have. So there's a complication on that side a little bit because it's 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 almost like a mismatch of an understanding of your responsibilities versus what's marketed as far as what you're getting. But for the most part, you know, it's they're not perfect. It's just a vehicle for you to get a property. And, you know, just briefly the people that this is great for, new investors, hands down, even if you want to do rehabs and more complicated stuff later, I think turnkey is a great way to start because it'll it gives you the the um, time and ability to learn the fundamentals, how to run numbers, how to do due diligence. And those two things alone will carry you through your whole real estate career. And if you take on a big rehab job, you're going to be so inundated with all that mess. You're, I guarantee you're going to skip over learning a lot of the fundamentals. So new people, it's great. If you're in California like me and you just want cash flow or something affordable, out-of-state investors, they're great for. And then the last category, also kind of not intuitive, is let's say you are a fixer and flipper. You can really only do so many of those at one time because you're limited on your resources. So if you have all this money sitting in the bank, just kind of sitting there waiting on you to you know go to your next flip or whatever you're going to do, you can invest that into a turnkey where you can be more hands-off, let your money do good stuff for you while you continue to do your active investing. So, I mean, I turnkeys are, I, yeah, I mean, there's such a love-hate thing. I love them some days. I hate them other days. They're fun to talk about. They're adventurous, but, you know, they're not a strategy for everybody, but they can be phenomenal for certain people, and I was one of them. Yeah, and I think I want to dive deep into that and give you some different options for our listeners to think about. Like, let's say this: you're a newer investor, or you have a limited amount of funds, and you don't want to spend time doing all this work. I think turnkeys for me is that if I was going to do a turnkey property, I would look in an out-of-state prop area where the prices are cheap, 
and the rents yeah. are relatively high for it. I don't know the area. I don't know the lenders. I don't know the contractors. I don't know the property managers, you know, and I can start learning these things. But yeah. if I was to go in and do a fix and flip, I'm not there. And that's going to be really hard. And I'm limited on resources and time and knowing yeah. who to trust. So for me, if I was investing out of state, I would look at turnkey properties as my first method first to get into yeah. the area. So one is a get in. I find it. Yep. I run all my numbers first. I look, is it cash flow positive? What's the chances of the rental market going up? What's the um, job median incomes? How's the net migration growth and the economy growing? If that makes sense to me, and I think this house will build equity while it's being turnkey and I can rent it out relatively quickly by looking at the market and seeing how quickly our home's renting yeah. and it makes sense, I, I would consider it. I would say, what's the cash flow on it? And what's the percentage? Am I getting 4%, 5 yeah. or 6 or 8 And take my risks into mind with that. The second part of turnkeys for me is, okay, once I get building it up and I see it's growing, is that area um, just short-term rentals, long-term rentals? What can yeah. I do with the opportunity and how much equity will I grow in it? And I have really good examples of some clients who made really good money doing turnkey properties. And the next question I'll go to, okay, well, you want to do fix and flips. Okay, great. The question is this, how experienced are you? Are you a handyman? Are you new? Are you learning? You want to, you're handy and you want to do it? Yeah. Realize how much time it takes and what's the cost per hour doing it. And I've done my own work before too. I'm like, why did I just do that job? And it cost me the X amount of money and time. I like, I could have made that money investing in something else and not doing the physical labor, but I did it for the experience and to yeah. know, but knowing after the fact is like, oh, I shouldn't do it again. <laughs> and I, you still do yeah. it again. Right. And the thing is this, okay, well, if you trade your time, you're trading time for money, uh, for money, how much is your time worth? And how knowledgeable are you going to be able to do that work? And you get tired. Everyone gets tired. Like who wants to sit there and paint a whole house, do run electricals, run these things and make sure you're working with the right proper people to do it. But like, it's a lot of work and you can build sweat yeah. equity in it quickly. Well, and even, you know, outside of just the time, it's what at least new investor like fix and flip can be so great value add can be so great but what a lot of new people don't understand aside from the value of your time is the risk i a few years ago i was touring turnkey properties in baltimore and we would see some that were done like fully rehabbed or whatever but then we would see some that were kind of in the middle of the rehab and or hadn't even been rehabbed yet so we would walk into these properties and so many of them there'd be like half of the room was obviously just recently redone drywall paint everything and then the other half was just like missing and mm -hmm. i was like why is half of the like it was yeah. so clear they weren't in process this was half of the house was rehabbed and the other half was not and i was like what happened here and there were so many stories like baltimore has been a big market over the years for people wanting to fix and flip and provide turnkeys and all that kind of stuff. And every property we went in that this was the case, they said some new investor had this pie in the sky fix and flip idea, got halfway done, had no idea what all came with it, what the risks were. They ran out of money, blah, blah, blah. And they had to get rid of the house half done. They didn't yeah. get to finish the project. And it's not to scare anyone away from fix and flip, but so many, and God bless HGTV, you know, whatever is it just, people don't realize what level that they're getting into and where the risk points are about that. And so like one of the arguments against turnkeys, a lot of people hate turnkeys and they'll bash them all day long, which I don't totally understand, but it's different. Okay. Well, you're going to pay market value. Your cash flow is so much lower. You know, you're, you're not going to have any of that equity and whatever. Okay. Well also, okay, so fine. Let's do the fix and flip version of that same property. When you have rehab overages, especially now with contractors and lumber and all these things that are happening today, supply chain issues, and you go over on your budget, your hard money loan runs out because you didn't, you know, that's whatever. Okay. If everything goes correctly, yeah, you're going to make more money than on a turnkey. But what if it doesn't go correctly? You have all these risk things. And again, if you know what you're doing, great. But if you're brand new, there's a lot of stuff that you don't know that you don't know. And so, okay, let's say the difference in equity of a turnkey and a fix and flip is thirty dollars or $40,000. Like, well, I'd be thirty dollars or $40,000 richer in equity with if I do it all myself. Okay, well, how much of that is paying you for your time? And how much of that are you potentially going to lose if something goes wrong? It's like, aren't you almost kind of back to the turnkey numbers if mm -hmm. everything doesn't go perfect? So it's, it's not a sure thing one way or the other. And just like you point out, like fix and flip, it's not for the faint of heart. It, there are things you really need to know. And it's an astronomically higher risk level, which is fine. 
you also get more reward if it goes right than turnkeys. But again, you know, I have a lot of people that call me and they're like, you know, hey, I have a full-time corporate job that I love. I've got a family of five. I want to invest. Well, if, especially if that guy lives in California, he may not want to do a fix and flip in California next to him with a high entry price and have to manage it. He's got other priorities. So, you know, it's, it's all, you know, I think the a takeaway from all of this and everything we're talking about is really every person individually needs to think for themselves. What resources do I have available? What's my interest level in doing this? What's my skill level? Where am I? And, you know, choose a strategy that fits accordingly. There's, there's no wrong way to do it necessarily, but there's a lot safer ways to be more successful if we want to phrase yeah. that. Yeah. And I get that too. And that's one of the things I want, I want to drill upon is that every method is, there's no wrong method. It's just how you're choosing to do it based on what you're interested yeah levels are and where you where you're interested in and the thing about it is this like yeah fix and flips for me i don't do fix and flips i don't really want to do it i help clients do it but i don't choose to go do it and the reason i say that is because there's good money to be made but if for my investors they don't have to worry about it because i just take care of everything for them but part of it really is not knowing the fact is once you start opening walls and start changing everything things happen there will be delays. There will be cost uh, change orders. And you have to realize that too. So I say as a new investor, start small, start easy, do cosmetic fix and flips, like paint, yeah. hardware, fixtures, and things like that. Later, when you get skilled at it, then you start opening up things. But you realize yeah. that today's market, everything you're doing is delayed. Appliances up to a year later, if you're doing high-end appliances, windows, four months to yeah. a year, depending on which brand you're choosing. Um, contractors, I was just about to say, let's not even talk about the contractors and their community. I'm in the middle of a kitchen gut right now. Mm -hmm. I could, I want to throw all of the contractors out the window. (laughs) Like, they were supposed to order the everything a month and a half ago. And he's just texting me today. Like, oh, well, did you order this? No, you said you were like, oh, yeah. Contractors are not. Contractors, not all contractors are prop are, are managers, right? Project managers. If unless you're they paying a high contract, project managers, then that's different. But if you're just paying a general, normal general contractor, they're just trying to do the job, help you as they can. But they're not professional project managers. You got to yeah. take the project yourself and manage it. And no, that's where the experience comes in. Know the timing of everything comes in. When I started my projects, I already know before you even start contractor, you're gonna have all these delays because all these things you need to order. I know you're probably not gonna think about it until the time comes to do yeah. it, and you're gonna tell me, "Oh, I need to go to another project because I'm waiting for that." I'm like, that's why on day one we order all these things first. You go measure and order it first because it's gonna take six months, a year, four months, and plan it out and then break it back down. But that's an experienced investor who does that all the time. And that's yeah. where you gotta realize that versus a turnkey property, you go in. Sometimes it's nice to buy a turnkey property. You don't deal with anything. You move it, you buy it, you move in or rent it out right away. And you just go from there and you learn from that part. Move on with your life. (laughs) And another thing I think about too is this. Okay, here's the numbers for turnkey property. Here's the numbers with risk tolerance and risk factors, especially today's market for fix and flips. And also taxation. How are you dealing with taxes? Talk to your CP about it. Short-term and long-term taxes. There's issues with that. And that, that eats into your profits a lot. Yep. People don't realize that when they do a fix and flip, why'd you do that? You made this much net profit, but after taxes, you made nothing. Yeah. And you can't 1031 a flip either. You can't 1031 a flip and go, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, That's why we talk about it before you go do it and jump in. Okay. The next opportunity is this. Some people say, I don't want to deal with any of that. Then there's no buying notes and dealing with real estate notes. That's an option for people who want to do that. The other one I talk about is real estate syndication, real estate funds. How are those... You know, multi-unit storage spaces, office spaces, how are they performing? What numbers are they giving you? Is that number better than the numbers you're seeing here? Some yeah. of them are. Is the tax benefits on those better than the ones you're seeing here? Some of them are, but yeah. it's up to you what you want to do. For me, my time is valuable. I want to be more passive than active. I want more family time. I look yeah. at things that deal with more passively because that way I can have more time freedom to do what I want rather yeah. than doing all the work construction. I'm in construction now. I do construction for 12 year, twelve month projects, 16 month projects. I'm like, it's tiring. Yeah. You know? And things change and cost changes and you're like opening new things and finding out new things. Yeah. It, it, it hurts, right? But yeah, it, hurt. it hurts. So much of it hurts. Well, and I have a I've had a theory for a handful of years now that I believe there's actually three true currencies. Money, we all know for sure. But the two that aren't the second one is time, which that one is starting to get talked about a lot more. So number one is money. We all know that one. Number two is time. And in my mind, number three is sanity. Mm-hmm. At any given point, whether you're investing or deciding whether you should hire a house cleaner 
or, you know, whatever decision, if you are trying to get something, you're going to pay in one or more of those currencies. Which one do you want to pay more in? For me, I would rather pay more money if it means I get to keep more of my time in sanity. Hands, and this may be a different priority for everyone that, you know, the person with a family of five and a full paid job, time might be their absolute most valuable currency. Whereas like, let's say you're a full-time fixer and flipper and you love what you're doing, then money might be your most valuable because if you fix and flip, it doesn't take away, it might take your time, but that's okay. But it doesn't take away your sanity. For me, like dealing with these contractors on the kitchen gut right now, my sanity is absolutely dwindling. The time it's taking isn't terrible because it's all under insurance because it was a water leak from the fridge and whatever. So like if they're not performing, I can just call the insurance person and she can put the smack down. But so it's not taking a ton of my time, but my sanity is absolutely swirling the drain. And with turnkeys, the way that I've looked at it is for me personally, because sanity is my number one and then time's my number two, not very far behind that. I would rather pay more money if it means I get to keep time and sanity, but everyone's going to have different feelings on that. And what makes me lose sanity is going to be different than what makes you lose sanity or gain. you know, some people like being handy and it brings them joy that increases their sanity, but everything that I do in life, especially in investing, I look at it in terms of those three currencies. What am I going to pay in? And is that in line with the currency that I value the most? Usually I end up paying more money because I really like time and sanity. But, you know, there might be certain things that I do enjoy spending my time on and I get to save the money because I'm willing to put that effort in. Like when I published my first book, although that didn't help on my sanity at all. Like I could have paid more money for a company to publish it and do all that kind of stuff, but I actually wanted to learn the process myself. So I saved a ton of money, but I paid a lot in my time and sanity, which, you know, it, so it's all a varying type of thing, but exactly what you're talking about is everyone's going to be in a different situation. Different things are going to come with different, there's pros and cons to everything. And to me, there's no one way that wins or loses. It just depends on you as a person and what is the best fit for everything you can offer. Yeah. Let's talk about your book really, really quick. What is your book about? So my motivation for the well, perfect lead in, because I was just talking about the three true currencies. That's one of the chapters. So the motivation for my book was kind of, I wrote it, I published it in 2020. And so that at the time it was like eight to nine years of investing experience. And it was really looking back over the, we'll call it 10 years because it's an even number right now is what I've seen because I work with turnkey buyers all the time. Now I'm doing a lot of investing coaching and that's a lot of non-turnkey people as well. And what I tend to see with everybody, including my own journey, is so much more of this is about A, understanding the industry and the options because it's like how to be a real estate investor. You should flip properties. You should wholesale. Okay. You don't know. You don't know how to know any different. Like, okay. So understanding the industry and the options and really just your own mindset, kind of like we've talked a little bit about like, what are your actual strengths? Like my strengths are not involving anything having to do with flipping. And so like turnkeys, whether I like it or not, are really fitting towards my strengths. Like would I choose turnkeys if I had the option? No, <laughs> not nearly as exciting. I'd go to third world countries. Um, but really looking at yourself as a person, but really just what I've seen with everyone is it's so much more of a mindset situation as far as how to succeed as an investor, whether it's knowing the industry and the options and increasing your arsenal as far as what tools to use, creative financing, all that kind of stuff. And also your own mindset of, you know, a lot of people, we talked about fear earlier, a lot of people struggle with a fear of failure. So they get stuck in this analysis paralysis and they can't pull the trigger because they're terrified. Okay, well, let's talk about fear. Let's, is there a way to redefine that? What happens if something goes wrong? That kind of stuff. So my motivation was, it's called Not Your How-To Guide to Real Estate Investing because there's so many how-to guides out there. But my theory is there's not a how-to guide in the world that's going to help you if your mindset's not right. So I kind of wanted to write like a prerequisite, if you will, to the how-to guides. It's like basic things that will be helpful to understand before you get into the how-to guides. Should you be flipping a property? Some people, sure. Not everybody. How yeah. do you know? Should you be flipping properties? If it's in your wheelhouse hands down, go do it. It'd be, I'm envious. I think it'd be super fun, but it's just not really my wheelhouse. Maybe I do it later for the experience and whatever, but you know, how do you look at those things? And so 
my bigger motivation really is there is such a high failure rate in real estate investing. And I think so much of that can be avoided because none of us learn this in school. There's not a clear cut way of how to do it. No two investors I've ever met do it exactly the same way, which is great news. You get to personalize everything, but it's terrible news because that's hard. <laughs> like, how do you know, how do you know how to do something if no, there's no one there to exactly tell you how? So if I was really just kind of wanting to create like a support kind of thing to try and help people increase their chances of succeeding with whatever they choose to do. Nice. I, I like that too, because people really do. And even I realized over 16 years that it is really about mindset and knowledge and putting your mind to use it, to go find the knowledge and really understand every different avenue to see what you like, because it's hard. And there's going to be a lot of naysayers out there. And the naysayers are the ones who haven't been doing it. They haven't been yeah. doing everything. They just want to protect you. And I get that love and protection. Or they saw HGTV and they're like, I'm going to flip a property and the whole thing went bust. Yeah. And now they're just like, ugh, real estate or ugh, flipping stupid or ugh, turnkeys are stupid. It's just a lack of knowledge. And so yeah, that's what, you know, like, and the people who really, you know, like people bash rich dad, uh, seminars all the time. Yeah. I think most people show up at those seminars wanting everything handed to them. They don't actually go put in the work and then they're just like, oh, seminar was such a waste of money. Yeah. Uh, and so like, but if you legitimately think about real estate and you're like, I'm, I want to be in real estate, so I'm going to wholesale or I'm going to flip. And if that doesn't work out because it's just not really your thing and you leave the industry, that crushes me because it's an industry that has so much potential. It can, it can boost confidence. It can boost your finances, like everything. I don't want you to leave unnecessarily. And that's what I want to help people with is like, okay, hang on. If you're going to leave and you really hate it later, fine. But like, are you leaving because, you know, it, you didn't quite get it right the first time? Like, that's what I want to help with. And that was really where the book came from is like, looking back, what are the things that I've seen people need help with and what did I need help with and what are people not teaching? So that's, that's why I tried to include in there. Nice. Yeah. That helps a lot too. And that mindset shift. And even, even this too, you should have a podcast based around that because people need to understand, you know, these different mindsets, the goals and how to figure out what's best for them because it's the time it takes and being surrounded by people who, talk about real estate who are motivated who share different experiences and for you to figure out your own experience like you know i started investing multi-units at an early age because i started learning about it and liking it and believing in it and now i'm invested in over 3600 units uh, mm -hmm. across the country right and it's good because you know you start seeing the different dynamics of things but the point of it for me was how to learn how to grow through it and you know, go through all yeah. the challenges fix and flips are a lot of work it's not always fun and yeah. dandy um there's things you knew i think the easiest way to tell someone is this you like planning weddings every day dealing with thousands of vendors, dealing with thousands of issues, making everything perfect for your big day when you're selling a property. And if you don't and you're not organized, that's what it feels like, you know? Yep. And it's tough. But if you like something easy done for you, you just go there, like go to a wedding in Bahamas and be done with it and like perfect. Yep. And it looks beautiful. And you don't have to do anything. You just pay money to do it. That's a different turnkey style, right? Yeah. So it's a choice. There's two different aspects of it. But well, I love that example too, because one thing I did put in the book at the very end, I interviewed five or six different investors, myself included, who all do very different strategies. And we all had the same questions because what I really wanted to do was like paint a day in the life of. And I love the example of the wedding planner because it's like someone could be like, you know what? I think planning weddings could be really fun. Like I want to do that. <laughs> but what most people don't know when they pick an industry or a job or something is, okay, that sounds some level of fancy. Like you probably know there's gonna be some work, but Let's break down what does that actually involve? How, you know, what skills are really necessary? Like how cool would it be to sit down with a experienced, successful wedding planner and be like, tell me what the books don't tell me. You know, what do I really need to be good at? What can I expect? What are the challenges going to be? And that's what I did with all the investors in the book is let's paint a day in the life of, because if you think you want to flip properties, great. You might be absolutely perfect for it. What skills are actually going to be required because we all know conceptually how to flip a property but what does that actually look like on a practical level so i did that with a wholesaler a fix and flipper myself with turnkeys so that way you can kind of compare the day in the life of and the different skill sets required for each of those things so that was i was actually pretty excited because all the investors that i interviewed i have personal relationships with they're all incredibly successful at what they do and i was like tell me the juice. I want to, I want to know the, what's the, what's the real stuff? You know, what are the flipping books not tell you kind of thing? So yeah, I, I love the example of the wedding planner. Cause it's exactly the same as like, it can seem great to like, you like events and you like planning, you like management, like how fun, but let's make sure you really understand like, you know, 
not every single day is going to be a bunch of roses. So what are those days going to look like so you can be prepared for it? Exactly. exactly. That's why I think about sometimes when I'm looking at people doing it, I'm like, okay, open your eyes and really see what's going on behind the scenes to really get the point of yeah. it. And another thing is too, you want to do a fix and flip, go look at your local neighborhood and see who's who's fixing and flipping a house. Ask them if you can volunteer for the day, for the week, for the month and yeah. get your hands dirty and see if you like it at the end of the month. If not, then how are you going to do it yourself? And you do all that before you create, I always say like one of my, because I work with, you know, entrepreneurs and business stuff and whatever too, is like, I always say, don't create the business before you've started, or don't start the business before you've started the business, which means like you Google how to be a real estate investor. And you're like, yep, I'm going to flip properties. I like that. Okay. I'm going to create this entire life and this business and this LLC and all this before I've ever actually flipped a property. Yeah. Okay. Hold the phone go do exactly what you said. Go volunteer with a house flipper for a month. Do some kind of work in that. Start flipping before you create this whole business around flipping. Don't start the business before you've started the business. Like don't start the business on something that you haven't actually done yet because it might not make sense on pay. Like flipping and someone's, I just flipping is just an easy example. Flipping on paper may look like it should be somebody's perfect strategy. Like, yes, I like doing that stuff. I'm good at this stuff. I did a and for some mystical reason, it may just not work out. It's kind of like me with turnkeys. It's opposite. If you had pitched turnkeys to me when I was trying to get out of corporate, I'd been like, no, nothing about turnkeys fit what I was trying to do other than the hands-off thing. But it just is my thing for mystical reasons we may or may not know. I don't know why turnkeys are my thing. And most of us don't really know what's really going to be our thing. So make sure you found that before you put all of that effort into whatever. And I love your example is absolutely a perfect idea of go volunteer doing the thing that you think you're going to like doing and see if it, see if it catches. If you're like, wow, I got this. Like, and, and things start falling in place because to me, that's the biggest sign that you're following the right track. And if you go volunteer as a flipper or with these flipping people for a month and it's just not really clicking well, maybe that's not your strategy. I guarantee you there is a strategy for you. You just got to take a second to look for it and figure out what that is. Whatever clicks is probably a path that you should explore. There's no instant gratification. The only gratification they'll get is failure right away if they don't spend yeah. time to actually figure out. And I don't like that. that. I hate that. Yeah. I'm like, no, I don't want that to be the case. Yeah, exactly. Cool. How do people reach out to you? How do they learn more about what you're doing and how you're doing turnkey properties? Well, so now that we've uh, put a stick out for the book, I actually created a link for your listeners just for them where they can get a free digital copy of the book. So if you go, my company's name is Hipster Investments. So if you go to hipsterinvestments.com slash truth, let me double check. That's actually what I made it. Uh, uh, yep. Slash truth. Super simple. You can get a free copy of the book there like me and you need to hold a paperback copy. There's a link to the Amazon uh, order page there. But also in there, there's information. I do real estate investing coaching. Hipster obviously is very turnkey oriented. So if you go to that page, you can get all my contact information. Um, you know, I can help you with turnkeys for sure. I feel like I eat, sleep and breathe turnkeys. And I'll, I'm always very honest, like I'm transparent. That's really the position I try and take with those things. And then just general real estate investing coaching. Like I said, most of my people that I work with are actually not turnkey people. So especially if you're trying to get in, if you're overwhelmed, like I work with those kinds of folks all the time. So I love hearing from everybody. So go get the free copy of the book and reach out on that page. Cool. Thank you so much, Allie. Uh, be sure yeah. to reach out to Allie at Hipster Investments. And for everyone out there, be sure to check out the Truth About Real Estate podcast on YouTube and more. And we'll see you guys in the next one. Have a great day.